Hi, I'm Steve Gaynor, your host on Tone Control, with a super cool, exciting announcement, which is that this is the final Tone Control uh, uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I'm calling everything up to and including this episode, Season 1 of Tone Control. I started the podcast as a project in the hiatus between finishing work on Gone Home and starting work on Fulbright's next project. Um, and here we are, starting work on Fulbright's next project, so I guess it's time to wrap it up. Um, you know, I I started Tone Control just as, as an excuse, really, to talk to interesting people I knew or wanted to get to know in, in the games industry about, you know, their work. Basically just talk shop with them, you know, because I knew I was going to be at conferences and stuff where I'd be in the same places as a bunch of really interesting folks in the industry, and I could just bring a recorder and yeah, be able to go go in depth on their careers and how they approach design. Because, you know, when you're just hanging out at one of these things, it's not what you talk about. Um, but I'm interested in it, and I've found these conversations fascinating, and I hope you have too. Um, though one thing that I, you know, that I realized partway through recording season one um, is that, you know, due to a number of factors, you know, narrow uh, requirements that I put on myself for what a tone control guest, uh, could be. And, you know, the logistical challenges of everybody having to be in the same place at the same time. Um, everybody's schedules are busy and so forth. I realized, uh, amongst other things, I hadn't recorded with any women. Whoops. Uh, yeah, like when I, when I realized that was going to be the case, I was, I was disappointed, uh, in myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's not like I have anybody else to to blame, um, but you know it was a it was something that that I realized was going to be the the case, and that you know I'm I'm very proud of the interviews that I've done, and I think that they've been um, really interesting, uh, at least to be the interviewer for. I hope to listen to as well, but it means that my mission statement for season two of Tone Control when it comes around is going to be to interview more different kinds of people doing more different kinds of interesting stuff in the games industry, you know, to achieve equal or better gender balance of the guests on the, on the show for the next season. And just take the opportunity to talk to people that don't necessarily have years long careers with tons of ship titles or haven't necessarily been in a directorial role. Maybe people that are earlier in their careers are just starting or are still students or, you know, that are even necessarily aren't like game developers as their primary function in the industry, maybe that do more journalism or advocacy, um, or organization. Um, so, uh, you know, that'll be, um, something to look forward to in season two of tone control. I don't know when that's going to roll around exactly. Um, it might start coming in, in drips and drabs as I have the opportunity, or I might just do it all as one big production after we ship our next game. Um, but in the meantime, Thank you for listening to Tone Control Season 1, uh, and I hope you enjoy the final episode of the season with my old boss, Ken Levine. All right, thanks. Tell me the coolest thing about yourself, Ken Levine. Oh, the coolest thing is that I now know what Steve Gaynor's beard looks like in person. And feels like. And feel, yeah, we kind of we maybe almost Velcroed a little bit. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Hi, I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, conversations with video game developers. Uh, right now, I'm in the hotel room of Ken Levine, uh, my former boss, <laughs> founder of Irrational Games, uh, and the creative director on Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite. Thanks for being here, Ken. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. On tone, on tone control. Tone control. Uh, Do you have a slogan? Um, it's conversations with video game developers. It's not a good one. I'm not saying it's like a catchy tagline. Um, but yeah, it's it's because I'm I'm interested. In, you know, I'm talking to kind of director types yeah. about like how you manage the feel of your because ga- games have so much different stuff going on in them. It's like how do you find that balance? And I think that one of the things about about your games about, you know, the shock games and, and so forth, is they have a really distinctive atmosphere and tone to them. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you for a bunch of different reasons. One, that we've worked together, and that's interesting. Uh, two, that, you know, games that you've worked on were some of my inspirations for, for getting into the industry. Three, because when I was in college, I did a zine. It was a paper zine that uh, was about video game stuff. And I made copies of it. It was like essays and very pretentious bullshit. Um, and I sent copies to, to studios of people I was inspired by and, and, and would like to um, interview for, for successive issues. And I sent one to Irrational Games. And, and I was very excited because I heard from uh, Kate Kellogg. Mm-hmm. She told me, Ken, read the thing. He'd love to talk to you. And I send in questions. And now, after 10 years... Finally, I will get answers to my interview questions. <laughs> I was playing a long game with you, Gary. <laughs> yep. Uh, I was like, yeah, you know, let's, let's see how he does with his own game. And then <laughs> see if he can make a hit game himself. And now that he did, I will, I will deign to answer your questions. <laughs> i got to get this guy on the hook. you got to ask Kate Kellogg what happened to that. Well, I'm not blaming her. Oh, I totally... I, the buck stops at Levine. Stops the boss. <laughs> it was a long game. It was a long game. Um, and also, uh, because I'm invading your, your personal space, uh, thank you for your, your patience, uh, Meredith Levine. <laughs> who is <laughs> your game boy. Yeah. Um, uh, allowing me to, to take up some of your, your time, Ken. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it, I think that um, one thing is uh, you have a, a long... Career. You started at Looking Glass in what, 1996 or 7? 5. No, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Because you founded Irrational in like 97. Yeah, co founded in 97. Right. Yeah. So, so I think I had 19 years I've been in the industry now. Yeah. Um, and obviously, Looking Glass was an incredibly interesting place and important for you and everything. Um, but there was a really good podcast series um, that Matthew Weiss did where he interviewed a bunch of ex-Looking Glass people about their experience during those days, and you did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listened to it, and it's fascinating. Um, I, I wish you had been a Looking Glass, Steve. I think you would have really... You would have you would have liked that experience. You would have had to accept middle school, high school kids' <laughs> uh, applications. Uh, I wish you could but, travel in time. I, it, was, it was such an interesting place. I honestly, in a lot of ways, like, A, I'm very glad that I'm in the industry now, and I am, because, like... We could not have made Gone Home five years ago. No. Yeah, distribution, the middleware, etc. Like it wouldn't have the thing we made wouldn't have been possible. So like I'm I'm grateful for that. But in a lot of ways, I also kind of wish I could have started in the industry five or ten years earlier than I did. You know, because being in that late '90s PC development yeah. scene, it it was such the wild west. <laughs> you know, of, of like, but the 
dorkiest Wild West <laughs> that you yeah. could imagine. It was, it was far less eclectic in the range, broad ranges of types of titles. Like you couldn't, I don't know if you could have done Gone Home like back then. Like people would even know what to make of it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the, co- the subject matter, you know, the content that it would just be like, wait, you just walk around a house where now people are so open to experimentation, you know, that I think they're they're looking for new things. Yeah. Like that. And I mean, there were there were bits and pieces of that. Like one of the things that I that I went back to that was an inspiration was the uh, the Halloween house level from SWAT Four, which is an international game. It's like there are these things in bigger games where it's like, whoa, it's really spooky to be in this basically just totally normal house, but under weird circumstances. Yeah. You know, it's like seeing those those sparks. Um, it would have been an amazing thing to have been part of as opposed to just a player of but um no yeah you you were you were there <laughs> for the for some of the good stuff yeah the interesting stuff um but yeah so so there's this podcast that you talked all about your looking glass days so um if you're listening to this and you're interested in cam's work on thief right was that the only thing you worked on at looking glass um uh, well there's a game there's a star trek game that got canceled mm. Star Trek voyager game mm. but thief of the looking glass games of thieves thieves what i spent my most the most time on i was on that from the very beginning till for about a year or so. Right. So I got to work with Doug Church on all these sort of conceptual stuff. Yeah, you were doing design and writing stuff. Design, coming up with the characters in the world and the whole steampunky thing. And, and he was originally, originally called Palmer, but then we changed his name to Garrett. Yeah. And, you know, Victoria and the and the, and the the trickster and the hammers and all right. that stuff. And, cool. Um, you know, getting that feeling, you know, that sort of film noir feeling. Yeah. It. And then all the stealth mechanics as well. Right. Um but yeah, in the interest of time, because you have a, a lot of a lot of material to cover, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go kind of straight to when you started Irrational, because mm-hmm. um, you went from Looking Glass and and you well tell me about you know what what was that decision like? You're working on Thief at, at Looking Glass. What was the process of saying yeah I'm gonna start my own thing? I I think so. I hadn't shipped a game yet, right? So I, I think I probably started to get nervous because Voyager got canceled. And I was a little older than most developers. I was about 29 or 30 then. And um, so I, I sensed what could happen, like, if products started getting canceled, you know, and I got nervous about that. Yeah. And But also I felt that I wasn't being fully utilized because I had done my sort of initial conceptual work on Thief. And then, you know, there's that period in development. It's like, okay, you have the original ideas, and that's super exciting. Now it's time to start building stuff where nothing's working at all right yeah and that was because they were building a 3d engine at the time the dark engine yeah that was a long period of time and i i there wasn't a lot for me to do because there was no engine really to play with at mm-hmm. that point and uh, i got nervous and frustrated there wasn't a lot to do and so i started thinking about well you know what if what if we did our own thing but you know we and i, I think it was mostly um I, I don't think I knew what I was getting into, and, you know. So John Jay and Rockford Man and I started talking, and we were sort of a similar. Not only one of us had ever shipped a game before, Rob. Yeah, and because um, he was one of the old school Looking Glass guys, he'd been on like Underworld and stuff, right? I think he was on Under. No, I think he was on System Shock and Terra Nova. I don't, okay. He didn't go back that far. Okay, but he's a really super talented guy. Yeah, a super smart guy, and you know. If we didn't have him, like, you know, he was, he was, the, he was the graybeard. He was the youngest of us, but he was the graybeard of the group, you know, in terms of experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, 
I don't really, I can't tell you, like, it wasn't really a sensible thing to do. Like, we had no experience. There was no, as you said, like, there's no distribution channel. Yeah. We knew we had to make a publishing deal. And, but we did it. And um, our first product got canceled three weeks in um, for various reasons about them. Oh, we don't need a single player mode. We're just going to do a multiplayer mode. And it was this game called The Fire Team, which mm. came out. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, was, that was Harvey Smith's thing. Yeah, I think. Harvey yeah. was working on that. Yeah. Um, with another co-founder of Looking Glass, Ned Lerner. Um, that's where I met Harvey. And um, this tiny little office in San Francisco by some highway somewhere. Um, <laughs> right. And um, we got canned three weeks into that job. And then we were had a scramble. And um, we ended up trying a lot of desperate things. And I was panicked because I didn't have like a marketable skill at that point. You know, I, I was almost I was 30 years old or something. And yeah. Um, we ended up getting a call from Paul at, at Looking Glass saying, hey, you know, we want to amortize the cost of this engine um, and do another game on it. Yeah. And um, have you thought about maybe coming and do something with us? And basically they offered to incubate us for a while. And that yeah. was, you know, great. And that ended up being uh, the game design we did, which at the time was called Shock because we didn't have the franchise rights. Right. And then once we made a deal with EA, um, they had the rights, I guess. And... Um, and I do not know where the rights are anymore, so please don't ask. Um, well, the, the nice thing is Shock 2 is now... Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's on Steam and good old games and stuff. Yeah. Somebody figured that shit out, finally, yes. which, is, which yes. is nice. That, that much of the rights I know that are out there, but there's a, yeah. so like, there's a lot of other... Oh, just as far as like if somebody wanted to make another Shock game. Yeah, that, like, where I think, I think those be? are just like ability to publish the old, that old oh, game on, 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 on platform. Yeah. Um, and they did a great job, you know, the get-going, because it was so basically not working for years. Right. Um, and um, and so I, you know, we got kind of lucky that we were like, oh, you know, what game would you ever want to make? If somebody asked me that, it would be I would have said at that point, be such a huge fan of the first one, System Shock Two. You know, yeah. what character in gaming fiction? Because there wasn't a lot of great characters in gaming fiction. Right. Time, what character would you like to write? Shodan would have been that character. Yeah. And because um, you really, you really go ahead, open your open your cup. my drink. Yeah. Uh, that's that's just good foley work. That's a good sound effect. <laughs> uh, that was added in post. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I feel like you know, Shodan was an established character yep. from the first game. But also, I feel like you, your interpretation of her was what made that character iconic. Because yeah. the, the Shodan in System Shock Two is not super different from in in Shock One, but it's definitely more of a defined personality, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Well, remember, like, a de- you know, I think once you have a character, like, establishing, breaking a character is very difficult to do. Yeah. And Austin Gross- Grossman broke that character, and he established, like, the look at you, hacker, you know. Yeah. Like, there was some really good writing there. Yeah. Um, I came from an experience of having more experience writing traditional narrative media, so I, you know, I couldn't put a three-act structure to something that right. they didn't necessarily have before. But... The sort of the, the, the naturalistic tone of the audio logs, and remember, the, the audio logs in the first game were basically recorded by Looking Glass staff mostly. I, mean, I at least hired a few actors. But, a couple, but I know that. Uh, oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> there was some internal. Cortez, you know, <laughs> me doing my terrible pretend um, uh, Hispanic accent. Um, but, uh, you know, I had experience directing actors and I had experience writing through act structure. Yeah. I, I was a drama, just because I was a drama major in school and I did some screenwriting. Yeah. So. Uh, like there were just some fundamentals that I could call upon that just for years of working in that stuff. 
but I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, having broken characters like Andrew Ryan and Elizabeth and, and yeah, um, sure. Cohen, I, it's not easy to, to, to conceive those characters and it, it doesn't happen that frequently. So I don't want to, you know, Austin, I think did a great job coming that character and it was a pleasure to write her. She no, was, absolutely. She was awesome. But I feel like in, I do feel like in, in, I, I play, so I played them in, in reverse order. I played Shock 2 and then went back and, and played the first game. I think that what was kind of defining about Shodan in, in Shock 2 was that she was a more, she was in a more conflicted position. She was kind of like, she was, she was desperate and fighting for survival in a way as opposed to being like, a mustache twirler, you know, like she she was manipulating you for a, a for an interesting reason. I I thought. Well, yeah. so there's a line in the first game which I pulled a lot. So a lot of the inspiration for writing her came from a line in the first game. Where she said, "Who are you?" And she was nervous when she said it. Terry did a great job performing the line. Yeah. For a villain to sort of not know what's going on in a game like that, that, that was a huge inspiration for me for writing the second game because. Yeah. Shodan has a lot of problems, you know? She's got this, these children that she created who rebelled against her. Right. She's scared, you know? She's she's nervous, she's frustrated, and she doesn't trust you, and you're disobedient, and she's, for her, that's not the world place she wants to be. Right. Um, and so that one line, actually, from the first game was very inspirational for me toning her throughout the second game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, there there are... There are lines from both games. I mean, I love I, I, I love the the intro to the first game because it it's so um, with such economy it yeah. sets the the scene. Um, and yeah, the 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 way that you understand all the parts of the world and and the setup um, is amazing. I think that's something that uh, you know carried through to all the stuff that that you've worked on. You know, from Thief to Shock Two to Bioshock is like getting the player into an understanding of like the situation that they're being dropped into in a really mysterious and compelling way, but just like no, no fat, you know, it's like, it's all the, 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 the meat of like, Oh wow. Okay. This is a really interesting conflict that I'm, that I'm stepping into and now I can just go, you know? Um, and that's definitely what, what shock two was as well. Um, so yeah, like what was the what was the experience of building that thing like? Because you had the the dark engine, which was yeah. not necessarily like designed for exactly <laughs> what you were. Well, also that uh, yeah, it was it was still in development, and you had like a new or you know you had a team of people that you were getting to, together to work on the the thing in a new situation. Like I think one of us had shipped a game before. Yeah, of like eleven. Right. Um, which can which can be there's there's something to be said for the novice, right? <laughs> you don't know what the hell you're doing, so you don't get stuck in existing exactly. routes. You don't you don't know what you can't do, and that can be a good thing. But um, I think that we needed that one person, Rob, to to sort of and John. Just if you ever met him, it's just John Shea is just a very you know he, he was he he was the product he was the director of the project. You know, he was the um, you know managed the production and everything of the product. He was yeah. also programming, and he just just had a great head for that kind of planning. Um, and um, and Rob was a game designer. John was a game designer. I was a game designer, you know, so we all sort of could make a lot of smart decisions on the fly. Sure. Um, and then we brought in some other people like Dorian Hart um, from Looking Glass and Eric Brosius who did the sound. So right. there's some really useful people. And then Nate and Eric Ian Vogel and guys like that came on board. 
Um, so by the time we got to the end, we had a reasonably good team of people, but there were a lot of very, very junior people. And the engine was basically not functional um, at all. Like, it was so crude. I mean, if you looked at the engine, I don't know if you ever played with the engine, but it's... Oh, because it yeah, it had a level editor, or you could like somebody hacked a level editor yeah. for a shock too, right? I've seen user levels for it. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it's just the original. I don't like it's so unadorned. It's you know basically four windows. You know, it's a, it's a BSP, CSG, computational solid geometry um, subtractive editor. Yeah, and like Quake or right? Like I think, I think Quake, Quake was additive. Quake yeah. was additive. And Unreal is subtractive. I'm not sure, anyway, but yes, you're. It, it's this. It's really straightforward. Just like. Removing geometry to basically dig out. Yeah, you're digging, you're digging out a big cave, basically. Yep. That's one solid rock, and you dig out of it. Um, and, you know, we we decided to go hardware only because that allowed us to have colored lights. And my feeling was visually that game needed that color because Thief didn't have colored lights because mm. it had a software renderer. Yeah. And I thought it really needed the color because I thought each deck had to really have its own space. And a lot of those decks... You're not seeing the color in the texture, you're seeing the color in the lighting. Mm. Like, like um, the, the hydroponics deck, which appears blue, is actually it's completely white if you look at the textures. Huh. Um, Nate, lit, Nate colored it with lighting, not yeah. with textures. Um, and um, so we had sort of a, you know, this interesting sort of aesthetic we developed for it, but it was you know, obviously based on very crude um, systems. And I think a lot of people, when we're working on Bioshock 1, one of the reasons Bioshock 1's corridors were so tight was because people thought that's what I wanted because they had played System Shock 2. But the reason the quarters were so tight in System Shock 2 is you can only show so many portals and BSPs right. at once. Yeah. There was no, um, there was no um, what do you call it, um, static meshes. Yeah. Um, so, and we had like seven or eight objects I could drop, garbage I could drop on the ground. I just kept turning them at different angles and arranging them differently. <laughs> it was a pretty shoestring affair. So you were actually in the editor like yeah. digging in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, that's I, an exciting time. Yeah, I did all the, um, I, t- I built all the, you know, I timed and built out all the animation sequences. So I was the, uh, you know, the Steve Alexander sort right. of, of, of Bioshock 1, of, <laughs> of, of, sorry, System Shock 2. Yeah. And there was a designer who bailed on us about a week and a half before we were shipping. Mm. And he, we looked at him, went to his level, Dory and I went to his level and we looked at it and the way we the way we gave it is we said okay you have to have these objects in your level and you can put them anywhere you want but these are the objects from a balance that we need to have right. we went to one big room and they were all there lined up on the grid on the ground <laughs> every object in the game and we had like so Dora and I basically stayed up all night split the level in half and we just each distributed objects <laughs> so, so I, I yeah so I did a, I did a, I wouldn't say I did a lot of level editing but I, I could use the editor and I did a, some level yeah editing. which I mean that's and that's that is really, I, I don't know, I think that that can be a really exciting scale to be working at, where it's like, yeah, the the you know, person who's like director level is also actually touching stuff. You know, I think that there's a lot of value to saying, I don't just direct what should be done, but I have to know enough about what that job takes. Keep to honest. Because I, yeah, exactly. Because I have to, okay, well, fuck, we have to move these objects around. I have to use the editor, you know. Like, yeah. I, 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 I like close to it. I know? really love it. I mean, I did all, like, another thing I did is I did all the vision cones. And, oh, like, yeah. So getting, being able to do that and actually putting the numbers around the test allows you to make the combat feel a certain way that you can't just by describing it to somebody. Right. Yeah. And um, so I've stayed doing all the, like, I, I'm still writing in the word processor, right? But I'm not really in the editor anymore. But yeah. I think I would like to get back into it um, with what I'm doing next because I agree with you. Like, if you're there, you can, 
you can just do it and demonstrate, hey, this is kind of what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think even if it's even if it's not like you personally on like your next project are tweaking the placement of pickups as you're getting towards ship or something, but if you have facility with the editor and you can like gray box the space and like basically distribute things yeah. and make like a really rough interactive sketch and then people can be like, oh, so it's like starting from here. That that is, I think that that can be super valuable. Yeah. You know. Um, how long was, was Shock Dune in development for? It wasn't very long, right? It was, I mean, really in full production about 13 months or something. Yeah. It was crazy. And it's a huge, it's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of floor space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the one advantage is you obviously, the, you know, the tools are so crude that you couldn't, you can only decorate so much, but it's something <laughs> that made it harder, right? Because you had to be very creative with your geometric choices and yeah. your object placement. And, um, but, you know, it was definitely, um, it was, you know, it was a really good game to have be your first game because I, I, I didn't. It was exactly the game I wanted to make. I yeah. think the three of us were really excited about that game, yeah, in particular. Well, something that that you know I was interested in that surprised me when I went back and played Shock One was, I guess, again, maybe this is because of my order of playing it, but I, I. Th- think of so much of what's in Shock 2 as being, like, native to System Shock. And it's, it's stuff like having the um, upgrade economy and, like, the, the the vending machines where you can buy stuff and having different character builds and whatnot. And then I went back it's and not. played Shock 1, and it's like, no, you walk around and you find key cards and weapons and you can use them or not, and you solve puzzles. And it's still, like, very nonlinear, and, you know, There's you're going no between sides. decks and everything. But um, there is a huge amount... That that was just whole cloth new stuff, you know that that that, that was in Shock Two. So like, I, I wonder where did the the approach that you took that was like, no, we really think you should have credits and be able to buy different stuff out of these machines and hack them and have cyber modules to upgrade yourself and all that kind of stuff come from. So it's funny that you know, um, you know, I try not to take credit where we where I don't think we deserve as much credit but I think one of the things that I, 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 I'm passionate about in that game is that it really was one of if not the first one of the very first RPG shooter games yeah and we decided the reason we became an RPG shooter was because the engine performance wise wasn't strong yeah uh, it looked cool and there's a lot of objects in the world but it's not going to run at a decent frame rate mm. so we figured it had to be more cerebral to make like you know, to make it work, that because it wasn't going to compete with a quake or a right. You know. It wasn't like about twitchy combat. Yeah, yeah. Well, it couldn't be right. It couldn't possibly yeah. be right. So we made the balance pretty brutal. So you got, and we made the resource economy super tight, and we made we want you to agonize over every choice you, you made because we knew that if you spent all your time thinking about in the combat space, it was not going to be it was not going to be a competitive game. And so we decided that was a, that was a function of the of a, of some choices made in the engine that just didn't make it a a fast engine. Right. And like for instance, there was an object system in the game, which was um, how each object was created. And had, one of the reasons you had so many objects, so many detailed objects, we had a really robust object system. But the problem was it was so slow that to generate a bullet in your machine gun, when you're firing your machine gun to instantiate that object in the world, took an order of several hundred milliseconds. Yeah. And so just getting a machine gun working in that game was almost impossible. We had to do tons of optimization. If I recall, and John and Rob, forgive me if I'm wrong here, I think we did a lot of optimization to make even the machine gun f- 
even a simple machine gun function. Because it had to like put a new bullet in the world multiple times a second. You know, to yes. make it feel like a machine gun, yeah. and that's not something the engine was expecting yeah. when you were firing a fire arrow once every right. few it's, minutes. It's, it's right, exactly. It was built for firing a fire arrow, and 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 because those objects were more complex than a lot of other objects, they had a lot more data. You know, right. so the game had to parse through a lot more trees, and you know, and they were still pretty slow processors back then. Right, um, you know, that stuff would not even register on the scale now. Right, but, um, and. Um, so, so yeah, so we realized we were sort of up against it in that regard, and we made a choice. And frankly, it was one of those situations where you end up only having a few things in the cupboard, and you make soup, and it turns out like, oh, that's really cool soup. Um, <laughs> Which is what I say when I eat soup that tastes good. I'm like, cool soup, dude. Um, yeah, what else did you say? <laughs> um, the, but, so, I mean, I, and I feel like that was probably what a lot of the, I mean, I'm familiar, because with Gone Home, like, all the decisions we made were based on constraints, like yeah. what we didn't have access to. And I feel like there there was a lot of that in, in Shock 2 as well. Like, I feel like... I Me, mean, you didn't sit around and build features and then cut them because you felt like it? <laughs> yeah, because we were like, yeah, I'm bored <laughs> ah, of that. fuck it. <laughs> we got time. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like there was a lot of stuff that, that kind of solidified in Shock 2, like, you know, the, the graffiti on the walls, you know, and, and sort of environmental storytelling. Yeah. Um, that there was some of in in Shock One yeah. and in Thief, um, but because you were doing more with like narrative threads, you know, like character threads that continued through and kind of went in parallel, um, that that you had to push those aspects further, you know, to to build more of a cogent narrative into the environment itself and into just the audio diary space and and so forth. Yeah, we just tried to use all parts of the buffalo. You know, we had. Yeah, you know, we had uh, dead crew member models and like in three different death poses, and right. you know, we had a guy stood there, and like I want to, well, what if we had a? And I think we made the first guy hanging from a rope, noose yeah. I've ever had again, and that wasn't even a rope. Basically, we took a piece of a stick <laughs> and we shoved it into the ceiling, and then we just elevated the guy to the point where he was roughly connected to the stick. Good, and um, that was our hanging guy. Yeah, um, but you know, and he had a little animation, so he was like. Yeah, he was twisting a little bit, just a yeah. little bit, so you assume it's a rope, and yes. it works. Yeah, um, but you know, but you know that there was a lot of lot. Most things came out by accident. You know, the monkeys were, um, you know, we were doing motion capture, and I hated doing motion capture because it was so crude back then. That right. Remember, I don't know if you remember. They had these um, sort of um, ping pong balls on yeah. them, and they would constantly fall off. <laughs> so like, every, you'd get like probably one good motion capture out of like seven tries, and I was so tired. And so exhausted after the day. And we had like two hours left in our session. I called up John. I said, okay, I got everything. I'm done. I'm coming home. He's like, you still, you still have two hours. And I'm like, <laughs> he's going to hate that impersonation because it's terrible. Um, it was good. It was a good Australian And accent. I'm like, well, I, I'm going home. He's like, no, no, you have two more hours. Come up with something. And I'm like, and I said to the voice, you know, why not? Why? I said to the motion capture, let's pretend you're a monkey. <laughs> and so that monster just was like, I got two hours in motion capture. So I said, and I said, and I came back to John. I said, "Well, you made me stay there, so we're putting sound like monkeys in." <laughs> um, and uh, and they were good. I mean, that's the thing. Like that's that's one of those things where it's like it emerges from the process. It wasn't a plan. There wasn't a design no. document that says there's going to be monkeys. Mm-hmm. But now you have this. the The end result is hearing a monkey noise is fucking terrifying, <laughs> right? And that's not something that you could have planned. You improvised, and then, you know, from everything I've heard, then now you've got monkeys in the game, so now you make 
this really memorable audio diary about how the monkeys got there. Yeah. You know, and I'll just kind of. Do you, ever, do you ever read the Admiral Bananas diary? The one from the Easter egg with the. Yeah. Yes. That was actually, I mean, we, we aped that. Did, so, did you, did, have you gotten to play, uh, I'll cut this if you say no. Have you gotten to play Gone Home? <laughs> I am playing it when I get back. I, I only ask because we wanted to put an Easter egg in the game just for fun. Uh, this is spoilers, uh, but it's really stupid spoilers, so it's fine probably. Um, and yeah, the, the basketball Easter egg from Shock 2, just okay. for people that don't know, in like the second room after you choose your build and everything in, in Shock 2. If you climb up on a thing, you can find a basketball. And if you keep it in your inventory for most of the game, you can make a basket in the recreation deck, and then you get an audio diary of just a monkey making monkey noises, which is awesome. Uh, and so in, in Gone Home, uh, we put a little little uh, you know plastic basketball hoop on the back of Sam's bedroom door. And if you go into the garage, we put a little purple basketball up in the rafters. And if you throw something at it and hit it, you can take it and make a basket, and then we just have one of our audio diaries. Our, it was actually a very similar thing. Um, we, we, we went back in at the end of production for pickups with our main voice actress, and we had two hours, and we used an hour. We were like, what are we going to do now? We could just say, let's cut and run. And we were like, well, we did want to make an Easter egg. Sarah, why don't you take the script for the first audio diary in the game and then just read it? but just say the word meow instead of the words and pretend you're a cat. And so uh, you make the basket and you just hear meow, 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 meow. <laughs> and we put pictures of our, our of the team's cats on the TV when it's happening and stuff. So yes, uh, that is the most direct inspiration you've been to me, cat. <laughs> no. I the cat into the game. Yeah, you, you got our cats into the game. No, um, but, 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 but that's, yeah. but look, it's, it's, that's part of the fun, right? Like, yeah. like when, when you can just have an idea out of nowhere and and it's who's gonna say hey you're the boss right <laughs> who's gonna say no to you right and that's great yeah uh and it's 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 fun for the performers like i don't know whatever you you, you got a weird story to tell your friends guess what this guy made me do at this session today but it also, it also makes it more yours you know it makes it more sure. something that's you know you're able to step out of sort of the direct narrative from and really put you know, people like that stuff. Like yeah. People like the basketball. Um, I, I don't know if... I think... I don't remember because I think a bunch of other games like Deus Ex. I, I yeah. don't know if we were the first one or not. I can't remember. It, it came from... So I did my research. It came from... You could go into a hidden area in the training level of Thief and there was a basketball court. Yeah. And then it was in Shock 2 and then they did it in Deus Ex. So, so yeah, we didn't originate. It was Thief. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just It was fun. the start of a tradition. Yeah, and, sure. and we had a monkey in almost every one of our games until... Until so there weren't any monkeys in Bioshock One. Right? Bioshock One wasn't there. What, what did the monkey do? <laughs> I thought there was a monkey. Was a monkey mentioned? There may be. A, there may be. When's this going up? <laughs> yeah, who knows? This, this is going up. And you, you guys are so. The deal we, yeah, we're, days. Yes. We're, we're at GDC. This is my last interview of GDC. And yeah, uh, on Tuesday, the second deal, the second half of the Burial at Sea yeah. DLC for Infinite is coming out. Um, so you will not be spoiling it if you say there may or may not be some monkey related content, <laughs> but 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 don't get don't get too uh, hysterical. It's not confirmed. It's not neither confirmed. confirmed nor denied. Confirmed. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you 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 went through the whole process. It was this, it was pretty uh, pretty tight schedule wise. And you shipped your first thing. I what was I mean? What do you remember about when that game came out? I remember the deafening silence of releasing a game in 1990. 
Nine. Nine. No, no real internet. No real people talking about it. No, you know, not a lot of people bought it. Yeah. Nobody knew what it was. It reviewed well. It reviewed well. I remember being excited by seeing the first review and realizing we got like a 95 or something in, in PC Zone or something. Yeah. And that was really exciting. But outside of the reviews, that was really it. And, it was hard to hear about that stuff yeah. at that time. Like, I was in college and I remember that I didn't play it until maybe like a year after it came out because, like, it came out and it was like, Later, I was reading, like, end-of-the-year list stuff yeah, or something. What, hey, what's this? And I was like, oh, I, I think I had heard of that. They say it's really good. It kind of sounds like, there's you know, other games that I like. Okay. You know, and, I, and I, I bought it, and it was awesome. But it was really hard to, like, be in on launch day of a PC-exclusive well, title even, in 1999. How do you know when launch day was? Yeah. Right? Like, there was right. no... You could be reading Blues News. Yes. That was around then. Or Evil Avatar. Yes. Um, and, um... And that's the thing. There's just, the information was so thin. Yeah. Back then, um, and it was kind of a bummer because you really you worked on this thing, and then it just sort of disappeared. Now, with System Shock Two, you know, you sort of have this sort of st- a reasonably steady thing of people at events and saying, "Oh my God, you made that game! I really love that game." Um, but it was, you know, it was like Mara and I, my wife used to, I used to go to stores and see it on the shelf and that was exciting. And she would always like take it out if it was behind a game and like put it in front of the other game because she's like, she's always been super sweet like that. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was kind of, and look, the EA didn't really care, you yeah. know, less. And, sure. Um, it, it, nobody really, nobody really seemed to care at the time. And, um, but I was happy to have, have done it. Um, I mean, it's also one of those things that at this point, I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but I would think it would be, I mean, you make something, you put it out. It's not in the right environment to, like, blow up on day one. But here we are 14 years later, and it's still being converted to new yeah. download platforms. Like, people are, you know, you're, like, somebody's making money off of, you know, selling a bunch of copies of System Shock 2 in a Steam sale, like... Now I'm and guessing it made more revenue in the past year than it made in the first year. Yeah, and it, and and like regardless, but I don't of, get any of it. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but that said, like you know, mark, market value aside, it's like you made something that you know, in in what's a very fast moving, I feel like medium, people still care about fifteen years later. Um, I mean, you can't predict that at the time, but it, did did you feel like? No, I mean, did, I, did you feel it, like you you made something that was that was like gonna last? You know, I I have very visceral memories of it and a, a passion of working on it and um, like the music I was listening to and you know the, just the feeling in that tiny room at Looking Glass. You know, we were working out of their offices. We had one tiny room. Yeah, uh, I remember that very very well and. Um, and I never shipped a game before, so it was very impactful. But I, you know, I also remember working on Bioshock um, One a lot. You know, you know, the times I spent on that and Infinite. Those are the sort of games I think I spent the most of my time, like you know, like in, in development chair. Yeah. Um, and um, but yeah, I mean, it it was great, but but it it really. There was no there there after it came out. You know, there was yeah. no New York Times. You know, sure. You know, doing articles like you know, or the kind of just the amount of like nobody would, uh, you know, like the amount of coverage you got for Gone Home, which is which is completely deserving. 
it just it was it, it dwarfs to a factor of a zillion basically what we got back then. Just not because it, it just because there just wasn't it just didn't exist. Yeah, there wasn't the infrastructure for it. And it's hard for most games don't get the kind of coverage you do. But if a game like you can do a game like a new game, new studio that's of high quality, that's really unique, and it will stand out and it will come to the surface. You know, if you play your cards right, I think you guys did a lot of really smart things to play your cards right. Yeah. But starting with making a great game. Yeah, and I mean we we're we we're incredibly fortunate to be making stuff now when that infrastructure is there. And but you know you were you were there when the first sticks were being laid down for that that infrastructure, right? I mean you were you were there before there was really a support structure in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, and and, and but it's funny. I always kind of felt that. I still didn't, like, I did, I wish I could be more modest, but I was like, why don't they, they don't know System Shock 2, they don't know Freedom Frost, like, what's, what these people, where are these people being, <laughs> living under a bridge? And of course, no, there was, they, these things were a tiny part of the culture back then. Yeah. And that is something, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I, I, I love talking this geek stuff, but I'll, I'm, I will move past the very first game your studio made so we can hit some more stuff. But you you, you mentioned Freedom Force, and that was something that was actually really surprising. I feel like, you know, people know you for, you know, first-person, narrative-driven stuff, but the next game that you directed that came out... Well, John um, directed it, actually. I just wrote it. Oh, okay. All right. So I, I worked on conceiving the idea, and obviously all the characters that Rob and I came up with all the yeah. characters, and I wrote all the dialogue, but John was a director. Of the okay, so maybe, so maybe that's part of it, because I was going to say, it's such a departure, you know, because, like, Freedom Force was an isometric pause, you get, it was pause real time, time you yeah. could pause it, um, superhero tactics game, yeah. basically, and I, I played it when it came out, I, pardon me, I liked it a lot, um, but it is, it is a very kind of surprising next project from yeah. the creators of System Shock 2. It, it wasn't, you know, it was a passion project of, I was so in love with that period of comics. Yeah. And look, at probably some degree, that it, it did okay financially. Mm-hmm. Probably would have done a lot better if we embraced modern comics more, because there weren't a lot of comic book games out there, but I grew up with the Silver Age comics, so I, everything I thought was so cool and super clever, I was fucking old, you know? <laughs> so, like, I think it wasn't immediately appealing to more young people. That was me. Yeah. That was, like, entirely me pushing that, because I just wanted to write... You know Jack Kirby's Stanley right. stuff. Well, and and Rob Waters uh, did amazing Kirby right. inspired art we, that, we that used, was very much of the time. He could totally do it like Barry the Universe, but he he's a Gene Colan fan, and I'm a Jack Kirby fan. So <laughs> we would fight. Like I'd be like, Rob, where are the Kirby squiggles? And he would like he gets so mad at me, and we'd go back and forth. And it, it, the more I sort of like would stop looking at something, the more Gene Colan it would become. And so I think it was kind of heartbreaking for him because I really wanted to be Kirby and he really wanted to be Colin. Well, something and something that I think is interesting about Freedom Force and that continued through your later projects was that it did. So something that that I find fascinating that I respect a lot about the approach that you take is you work in a lot of themes and elements to the fiction that are from outside of, you know, kind of like the sci-fi or fantasy or comic booky stuff, like real world ideas, concerns. And I thought, I felt like that was even in Freedom Force, you know, with like uh, the first game, it was sort of like a Cold War yeah. kind of thing. Um, and just this awareness of the real world that would be surrounding these characters in this, you know, like fantastical um, yeah. setting. And, and making that relevant to, to their experience. Like, what was... 
I mean, my guess is... I'll answer your question for you. My guess is you just kind of can't help it. But, I mean, do you think consciously about, like, about incorporating, you know, the themes from the wider world when you're kind of writing these characters that are in such pushed contexts? No, I mean, I think of what what interests me, you know, like, and I think, you know, I'm guessing you're the same way. Like, you know, you, you, what, I just think I have a different, like, especially at the time, there weren't a lot of game developers who were interested in the kind of films I was interested in, the kind of books I was interested in. Um, And so, you know, Shodan, you know, collectivism versus fascism, you know, Shodan versus the many. Right. Um, Like, I was just, I was just interested in those, you know, portraying those two systems and trying to portray some of the positives and negatives of them and what might be appealing to the many, you know, they were interesting to write because they were about this collective, you know, something that's so, to me personally, I, I, I'd have a hard time choosing between Shodan and the many, you know, because the thought of being part of a large entity and not having my own identity would be so awful. But on the other hand, you could be Shodan's bitch. You know, those are, those are the choices in that world. Yeah. Um, well, and you have to find what's seductive about the other side, where it's like, you can just kind of be absorbed. You yeah. have no more worries. And I think know, a lot of people of thing, want that. Right? You know, like a lot of people, like I'm a real, I've never done well with authority, but I think a lot of people want it. They want to wear a team jacket and they want to feel and they want to wave a flag and they want to feel those things because it's belonging right Right. and i kind of wish you know like like sing-alongs like i I never can sing along or you know (laughs) i kind of wish i could because life would be a lot fucking easier but so i tend to write about those things that you know and of course you know i write about it from the perspectives of some weird space aliens and you know and and bashak one was a, a function of you know, me having read Rand and having seen why people, some people found it attractive, but also thinking about where it could go. If you, if you, if you took away, if, if you didn't have a person who was on the side of that philosophy writing that story, you know, if you read The Fountainhead and you read Alice Shrugged, she's rooting for the philosophy. So she right. stacks the deck. Yeah. So I try to give it a fair shake. Um, and I want to show what was appealing about it. Um, but you know, I also want to show what 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 could what could happen, and um, so but the, so they're just things I was interested in, and you know, I always loved New York, and I always loved their architecture and Rockefeller, and they all sort of came together, and you know, kind of came this vision in my head of this of this city, and then of course having a great team of artists to, you know, to, to yeah. execute that. Is, well, and yeah, I mean, just sort of. You know, segueing into yeah, going going forward towards Bioshock stuff. When so you guys started the very early conceptualization of of Bioshock, like long before the game came out, right? Like when when was the when was the first sort of like kicking together like the first versions of it? When they well, actually they, well, they were they didn't include Rapture, right? Yeah, we have we I think the first sort of. Uh, I know, I know. The simplest thing I think we was probably nineteen two thousand and three, maybe. Yeah, and that's early as hell. Yeah. I, I remember uh, when. So I so I was at two camera in worked on Bioshock two, and as part of that, we just got Irrational's Perforce Depot, and I remember uh, somebody on the team just synced back to the earliest version of Bioshock yeah. that they could find, and it started out in a space station. Yeah. There was yeah. a starfield outside, yeah. um, and that was something that 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 I've that I've thought about. And was kind of my assumption looking at it is that, you know, I think that the 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 heart of the the the, the kernel for Bioshock was saying, well, we we want to start from System Shock Two, like we love that experience, and we want to make that, but 
bring it to more people, kind of. Yeah. You know, like like make it in a way that's not so accessible only to hardcore, you know, like like PC geeks, you know, and and yeah. and I've always felt like what's so interesting about it is how much was retained. You know, how much in Bioshock One is just like what's well, straight up from Shock yeah. Two. Um and I and I, I always felt like and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that a big part of why Rapture is what it is is because it's like, all right, if we're making something that is based off of Shock 2, what else is like a space station? <laughs> what else are you trapped inside of and has like a skybox outside the windows? It's like, well, an undersea Absolutely. city is like a space station. You know, like first when we first conceived, it was like an island or a space station because when you don't have that point of like, well, why can't I just go across that bridge? You know, from a spaceship, that was really powerful, right? That right. made our lives a lot easier. And we that was the number one. That was like an easy decision. Like, we knew that had to be part of it because yeah. otherwise you wouldn't feel that way. Um, and, you know, the water thing was cool. Uh, you know, it could have been underground. It could have been anything. But it was a dungeon, basically, right? right. It's a glorified dungeon. Um, well, it was like you were saying about the earliest stuff. You were digging out tunnels and rooms yep. from a solid mass. You were always inside of it. Yep. And though I think Bioshock uh, 1 was done in an additive engine, we still had one of sort of the same... You, you, you took that approach, took like, that approach conceptually, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and those things are a function of, of, of that's the way to generally to develop that kind of game to create this monoculture. Because there's nothing can come in, nothing can go out, and yeah. you can't go out. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and so, so I, I think that was, again, a function of what makes those games work to some degree is that they are, um, that you're trapped. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I would, I could see, again, this is me projecting, I could see this sort of exploratory process. Like, so, so it was a very similar process for us on Gone Home, but, but like structurally not in the specifics, but if you're, you know, if you're like, well, what else is like a space station, an undersea city? When would an undersea city have been built? Why would it have been built? Who would actually go to this place? And like by answering those questions, you're like looking at your own influences and and seeing what kind of society would be there. And, and I can imagine that could have been the the starting point for. You're, you're very perceptive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because it's like, well, who? Why is there a city here? And I'm like, well, uh, I thought of Galt's Gulch, you know, and 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 Ashard was well. You know, they had to be separate because they w- they didn't want their 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 life trampled on. Yep. You know, and so they had to be separate. And so this, well, wouldn't it be cool if there was an Ayn Rand type character? Right. You're know, running this thing that they made this this exclusive utopia. Yeah. And um, and so that was um, you know, it, you, but you're exactly right. I mean, you're, I mean, your developer brain is showing through here. You know, <laughs> it, it's. It comes out of a function of a chain of events. I think people kind of think you sit down, you come up with some great big backstory, and you really don't. You come up with, you learn pieces of information what you're making, and that informs other pieces of information. Yeah. Um, and like, I don't know if, how you work, but I don't. I mean, I work with you, but I don't know how you work. Start, you know, as a creative director. Right. But like, I don't sit down and write backstory ever. Like, yep. you know, I, you discover I, it as you go along. You discover it as you go along. And you and what and when it matters, right? Like yep. what's you, like new stories come on, like you know, once we sort of came up with the Lutesses, you know, like wow, like let's talk about them and let's talk about how they, you know, how they got together and let's yeah. talk about those things. Well, but, I remember when I was on Infinite. So I was on Infinite for one year, and it was about a year and a half before you shipped. And I remember Lutess was only one person, mm-hmm. 
while I was there, I remember one of the last things that happened before I left was you were talking about what if there were two potential Lutesses that you met and you didn't know that they, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it was like you you started from an assumption and then started to explore the the implications. Yeah, because we knew we needed a, a character that gave exposition. Right. But we were stuck because when you were there at the time, you were, we were stuck because expositional characters are boring. Right. And so... And I mean, that's, that's something that's fascinating is now, after the game came out, the Lutesses are one of the most kind of like one of the 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 aspects that people really latch onto is being super interesting, right? Like yeah. you, you took this problem of this this is a boring concept and it became something that is is fascinating, right? Yeah, I, I think I think because I knew how boring the character could be, we spent a lot and it took forever, right? You remember how late they came sure. on board, really? As, as as they were like they were an old wizardy guy for a, they were a single person like an old right. wizardy guy or a or a mysterious, quiet guy. And then I watched um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead again. Mm. And the, the sort of rhythmic dialogue yeah. came into it. And then, you know, and then I wrote the, I think the first speech I wrote was, um, 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 he doesn't row, he doesn't row, he doesn't row. And all of a sudden I had their voice, like the, the using grammar to talk about the situation. I thought right. well, that was a way to talk by obscuring the, the, uh, the, um, the exposition to some degree. Right. I thought it made it more interesting. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I think but it was that, close. It could have been, end up being a terrible character. Sure. Um, I think that's something that, uh, I think that's something, I mean, it's not the exact same thing, but um, having a character that embodies the ideas or, or the, almost like the, the perspective of the game um, is something that, that has been true of, of, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that you've worked on. You know, like, Shodan is this focal point for, like, the personification of the world that you're in, and Andrew Ryan was very much that yep. as well. Um, I mean, how did you... How did you arrive at who Andrew Ryan was? Like, how, where did he start from? Well, he's pretty... I mean, look, he's... he's if you go read, there's a book called Ayn Rand Speaks, right? Hmm. When you read it, she speaks like, and I'm not I'm not qualifying her content. I'm saying how her sentence construction is. She speaks like Doctor Doom, like like Stanley writing Doctor Doom. Right. These really declarative, confident statements about parasites and 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 hangers on and and the church and 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 once I read that, the voice was in my head, and um, you know I just had to sort of evolve. I'm you know sort of he sort of merge him a little bit of Howard Hughes. Right. And once I knew I needed the... So, like you said, it's like a series of events. You have this, okay, what well, has to be a closed-off area. Okay, it's an underwater city. Okay, why would it be underwater? Because this, these guys has this, has this um, philosophy. What's the most interesting philosophy I've read about in a while? And, what is, what, and remember, this was before all the financial meltdown stuff and before the Paul, you know, Rand Paul and stuff. Right. So, Rand, you know, Rand Paul yeah. was named Rand Paul for a reason. <laughs> um, you know... I was aware of this philosophy and I read a bunch of it. Um, I just had to sort of being curious about it. And I thought it was so interesting and it wasn't something people were talking about. And that's what we always should do. Like whether it's art deco or, or objectivism or American exceptionalism, things that are sort of not really on the gamers front of the gamers right. mind, but I find really interesting. And I feel, can, is there a way that, that like, I like popularizing things that aren't currently popular. Yeah. Like, so I'm working on Logan's Run, you know, like I love it. And all I really want for it is I want 
it to become as to people to like it as much as I do. Yeah. You know, and so the same thing with all this other stuff. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of that's a huge part of being of working in a of working in a, 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 a kind of context that isn't the most popular thing in the world right now. It's like being able to bring more people into this thing and be like, oh, I see why that's interesting. Right. I'm like excited about that now because I'm aware of it and it's been put in this like appealing yeah, form. It's in package for me then in a way that, so I don't have to go and read Ayn Rand Speaks, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And, and I thought that, um, you know, Andrew Ryan as a character, the performance was really uh, incredible. Yep. You worked with... Um, uh, Armin Shimmerman. Armin Shimmerman. Yep. Sorry, I fucked that up. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, um, you worked with Armin Shimmerman, who is, on the one hand, uh, a tr- Shakespeare, classical Shakespearean actor. On the other hand, portrayed, portrayed uh, Quark, Quark on Deep Space Nine. And principal, uh, principal, what's his name, on Buffy? Yeah, the principal on, on Buffy. And I, I, so we, let's see, during the development of Gone Home, we, the development team, three of us, uh, lived in a house together. And me and Carla and my wife, mostly, uh, we watched through original Star Trek and then Next Generation. Wow. Uh, like just nightly, it would be like, all right, we're tired. Let's watch a couple episodes of Star Trek. Uh, and then we got to Deep Space Nine and I would see Quark and A, I would be like, he has a really good job. <laughs> He's a, he owns it. Uh, Quark episodes are good episodes. And B, I'd be like, it's fucked up that I've written lines for that guy <laughs> in, the, in the Minerva's Den DLC. I'm like... He read things I wrote. It was really, really strange. And he's, not, and he's nothing. I mean, he's a great actor. There's no, like... Exactly. I never would have thought that... I didn't cast him because he's, you know... I wasn't... I never watched Deep Space Nine, so... You cast him because he was in Buffy, though, because you love Buffy. Uh, no, well... You kind of. You kind of did. He I, he owned the... like. So he came back with this... His, um... The tape, right? You know, in the... In the... In the... In the... In the, in the um, what do you call it? The audition. Auditions, yeah. And his voice is not pitched for Andrew Ryan's. Pitch. Right. Like, we do a substantial amount of, of work on his voice. Yeah. To, not, just not to improve the quality of the performance, but the pitch. Yeah. He, you, you pitched him down so yeah. that Ryan's voice is deeper than... Yeah. But, but, but I think about a step and a half. Like, significantly. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. And, and I'll just say, by the way, take this for what you will. You don't need to comment on it. I've heard you shipped at least one line unpitched. It was one of, it's his, I think it's a speech where he talks about, like... How, you know, he came from Russia and so forth. Unpitched, you guys sound very similar. I must say, we got we got, we got whiny Jewy voices. <laughs> Sorry, Armin, I hate to out you like that. Well, that may have been. I don't know if it was unpitched, but actually, it was a pretty like I gave him some inconsistent direction. Like mm. he had more of a Russian accent. At, at, in some oh, of the parts than he did in others because yeah. you know he's, he's a Russian immigrant right um, you know he came but also probably trying to obscure it for you know to, yeah, to seem more well, authoritative in that time I think right? I sort of lost like we started that and then I sort of forgot about it <laughs> like you know um, I'm, I'm I am in one of my ass clown moments um, and um so that you may have been hearing that okay because um, I'd rather probably more likely my fault than the sound guys sure fault. right um, but you know, when I heard his first audition, I heard it unpitched and I, I just felt Ryan there in a way. And I heard like probably a you know, hundred people read it. Yeah. Um, and then I just said to, um, you know, there's two sort of cases of like 
the one classic case is I believed in Armin as it, and I had to like sort of argue with the sound. Like I'm like, no, take him and pitch him down, take him and pitch him down. And then you know the classic story of Courtney is that I didn't hear I didn't hear Elizabeth and Courtney first, and Christina uh, Dr. Zayek did, mm. and he, she sort of convinced me to come back and listen huh. to her again. So we you know they both almost got missed yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Um. So I mean that was a so Bioshock One was a huge time for you guys. It was your first console release. Yeah. You were pushing for like a a big breakthrough game. You got hooked up with with two K to publish the thing, the company. and in fact, you sold the company, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's something that I that I that I kind of want to ask about is like you had built this thing, you know, for what at that point eight nine years, something like like that, maybe more. I guess no, no, no. It was it was ninety seven through two thousand and four, two thousand five. Yeah. Did you sell it that early? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, I mean. That must have been a hard decision. No, that was the easiest decision I ever made. That must have been an incredibly simple decision. <laughs> because, you know, we were living, we were living, you know, again, at the time it was different, right? So we were living off advances against royalties. Right. And it, it was never, you never made any money as a developer. And, but we never missed a payroll, right? So we, like, the amount of stress that put on me if, to find work for the team. Yeah. Like, I was constantly... You, you, and then milestones wouldn't get paid on time, or they right. wouldn't get paid, or they would get rejected. It was a lot of stress. And we were always about to go out of business, and that would have been, all that time and all that energy would have exploded. So the, the opportunity, A, to sort of be able to realize some return on that investment, because it was years, I, was, I remember I was 38 years old or something. Like yeah. it, it was no joke. Like I had to like make some money in my life. <laughs> right. Um, and I didn't have a dime, you know, I didn't have any money in the bank. Because um, a lot of times John and I wouldn't pay ourselves because we had to make payroll. Um, and then also the fact that they would give us the they would said, well, if we buy you, we will give you this much money to make your game. Which was four times what they would have given us if they didn't own us. Right. And I thought we needed that much money. And it, was only, it wasn't that much. It was only like $15 million or something. I mean, oh, that sounds like a lot of money, but for that kind of game. I mean, you, like... It sounds like a lot of money, and then you think, hmm, how much do I have to pay one person for one month? How many people do I need for how many months? Yes. That money goes away <laughs> goes away quick, yeah. it turns out. Um, um, and, and, and so well, I was thrilled because that also gave us a chance to actually have our shot, I thought, to really right. have our, our shot at, the, at that. Yeah. Well, because um, if they had given you a quarter of the money you ended up with... It would have been another... How are you going to yeah, break through, right? And, and so you wanted to take that that next step. Yeah. And and what like what so, I mean, what was the motivation there? Was that was that sort of did you think it would give you stability going forward or, or or yeah. like because because it is sort of a risk reward thing. It's like well, we could make something else and be kind of stable and making something small or, you See, know, that's next problem. step. I, I don't think there was at that time. So at that time, that was the time when we made SWAT and Tribes and, Free, and Freedom Force. Right. We paid for we Freedom Force is a completely indie game. We paid for it ourselves. John yeah. and I paid for it ourselves. We. We had a distributor because you needed a distributor, but right. all they did was basically put the game, Vendi put it on their trucks right. and shipped it around, you know, but that was it. We handled all the marketing, everything. So, yeah. um, you know, we were, you know, we were basically, you know, well, until we sold the company, we were independent and Freedom right. Force was especially independent because we funded it ourselves yeah. and did all the marketing. Um, and it didn't hit, We it didn't make enough, it didn't make much money. Yeah. And um, then... I saw the PC mid-tier PC market fading. Yeah, and I said either I gotta either I gotta do something I gotta do something bigger 
because I saw this where the console games were going, and there yeah. wasn't yet the gone home style market, you right. know, where you could do a game for, you know, a smaller, more um, intimate, personal game. Yeah. And have a venue to sell it. So yeah. I don't think there was a choice. I don't think we would have survived. Yeah, I mean, at, so. the, at the point you were at, you were like, okay, the games that are making enough money to really sustain something is like Halo and yes. Grand Theft Auto. Like they were all. It was the console games yeah. were like the big yeah. sellers, right? And there was no, there was no, there was no place where you could sell PC games like that and make and 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 and, and make money without a publisher. Yeah. So when you sold the company, it was like. Counter-Strike and Half-Life 2 were on Steam. Steam had been around for like a month, right? So it was, um, do, or, it was do or die, and and I think we would have we would have gone out of business if we didn't do that. Yeah, um, but it but I and like how so so I mean how did it how did you deal with the shift to something that was like okay this has to be really highly polished high fidelity have like the impact you know to to like i don't know make good trailers out of you know like like it, it was sort of this thing where it was like this is a different realm of and i think that was and i asked because i think that was one of the things of that defined the game when you shift it was like the polish of the environment art and the atmosphere and the 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 production values like for what was there and what was there was real was like in a very looking glass way, kind of like limited compared yeah. to like a very cutscene driven game. Yeah. But like, I don't know how did how did you get there? You just I mean, I'm, look. I don't think I'm a surprise you. you work with me, <laughs> and you've done and you've done gone home. You 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 won't stop until it is. You know. Sure. And you see every thing that's wrong. It's like a stick in your eye. You know. <laughs> and. Um, you know, and you did nervous, you know, like, like you, you, you know, you've made content into, like before I even met you, Bioshock content, that's, I think, you know, Bioshock, you know, that is fully stands up with the canon of, of quality Bioshock work. And, you know, it's the same thing. It's detail. It's, it, right. it's detail. Um, I mean, that's, I, I, I can't speak for you, but. Yeah. I, no, I mean, not letting any, like as much as possible, not letting any detail slip. Right. I think that, I mean, part of it is just being the, the most critical person, the most critical eye on the content, where you just like, you pick up the controller and you start to play through. You're like, fuck. Half yeah. a second later, you're stopped. Yeah. <laughs> like that. And, and I mean, I, I know that, that there are some of the best times in development are when you're like, okay, I've laid in all the content. You can play all the way through this part and then you play through it. And every few seconds, you're like, fuck, shit. And you have a notepad and you end up with 10 pages of notes. Yeah. And then a week or two later, you've got 10 pages of crossed out notes and you yeah. fixed, all, fixed all the little shit that if you were a player, you'd be like, oh, that's not so good. Oh, what's up with that? Right. You know. Or, or you wouldn't even notice except your, the feeling of the thing just wouldn't be the same. Yeah. Like you couldn't even put your finger on it. Right. And so like if you look at the openings of the game, especially because where I spend most of my time on Bioshock 1 and in Bioshock Infinite, where the, where the opening of Bioshock 1, I spent infinite amounts of time on. The opening of Bioshock Infinite and the ending of Bioshock Infinite, I spent infinite you amounts of time You spent Bioshock amounts of time. I spent Bioshock infinite <laughs> amounts of time. And if you look at the detail there, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I played those portions through because yeah. every detail had to be perfect. Right. Um, and you don't always know what to, to do. You know, it's a guess sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, they say the Big Lebowski... You know, you eat the berries, and as the bear eats you, um, and you just all you can do is do your best. And you're sitting in a room full of people. People have done hard work, yeah. And you're looking at it and you're saying, "I don't think it's right." And they're looking at you and saying, "Well, I did, and I think it's right." And who's right or who's wrong? Who knows who's right or who's wrong? Right. You know, somebody's got to make the call. Yeah. 
I remember, so, um, so I worked with JP LeBreton, who worked on Bioshock 1 with you. He was a level designer. Um, and he, he relayed a, a, a memory he had of late in Bioshock 1's development. So he was a level designer on Arcadia, yep. which was the undersea forest, like, mm-hmm. oxygen-producing area. For the, for the people who might not remember. Um, <laughs> and, uh... Steve Gainer Bioshock lore. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can... I can tell you uh, all about where Adam come from and everything. Um, but uh, uh, he, you know, he was like, it was very late in development. I think you guys had like certed, you know, you've gone into cert, and he was just kind of playing through the level, looking for anything that if there was another cert pass, you might be able to fix. And he's playing through, and he was kind of crouched in the corner of an undersea forest, and there was a big diving suit man following a little girl around, and he was like, and then Ken came up behind me. And was looking over my shoulder at what was going on on screen, and he just goes, "Man, we made a weird game." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I and I think that it, it's I think sometimes you have that that moment of clarity of just like, "What did we? What did we just do?" And and you guys, I mean, were, I okay again. I know part of the answer to this. I imagine you must have been nervous about how esoteric so much of just like the surface level content and even the oh, themes yeah. and stuff were on that game. How do you, how do you approach holding on to that s- stuff? You know, like how, how does that become, how does that become the thing that, that goes on the disc? You know, well, cause it doesn't all happen at once. Right. Like, like you sort of say like the big daddies, I had this notion for, I watched a nature show one day and I had this notion of uh, what if you could just demonstrate relationships between characters without dialogue? Like, the notion of protector and predator and, and, and protected. Right. You know, I was watching about like, um, you know, worker ants or something. Right. And I said, well, people just see that and they understand those relationships. They don't have to talk. And, you know, and then a year and a half later, they became, you know, they were, went for, they first they were like little cockroaches, little sisters, and they became little sisters. And then, okay, we have little sisters. Well, then who's this Tenenbaum? Maybe there's this character, Tenenbaum. And, and, yeah, who, who is the voice of this part of the yeah, fiction? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you eventually end up with all these things that sort of fall into place, but not at once. Right. And, but yeah, then sometimes you step back and you look at it like that moment. I mean, I don't remember that moment. I'm sure Sure. it sounds like something I might say. (laughs) Um, And you're like, fuck, like, why do people trust me to make this thing? Why do they give me all this money to make this thing? Because it's really weird. Yeah. Um, And I had the, I had the, the opposite side of that where I was, I was playtesting some part of the level uh, in Gone Home fairly late, and I was just walking through the parents' bedroom and hearing an audio diary of, you know, my in-game teenage sister talking about the first time she went to see a, a show in the city, and I was like, we are making a weird video game. Like, this is, like just walking through somebody's house and hearing, like, this teenage girl just talking about her normal life, but it's like a first-person shooter. Right. Shape, it's like, it, it's such a strange, you know, occasionally you're like, we're making something that is just so strange that it exists. Okay, so let me ask you a question, though. If you don't make something that's personal, like, you, you that was your personal, you know, statement. It doesn't matter, like, it, if it, okay, not everything that's personal is good, but I don't think something can really be good without being personal. And when I say personal, I mean, there's lots of people in, who impact, you know, who influence a team and lots of people bring things to the table. Yeah. But you heard that and you may think it's weird, but I bet it felt right at the same time. 
yeah, it, it was like, I'm glad we're doing this. But it's, yeah, there, there are so many different ways for a game experience to just, yeah, it, it accretes into something that's like, this is the right shape for the thing. Yeah. But what a weird path <laughs> we took to yeah. get to, to seeing this stuff on screen. I, I think people's understanding of game development is very, 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 very limited. Um, and I, think, I mean, when I, before I was a game developer, I think I just didn't even know. And me too. Where they, you know, where they came from at all. I didn't you know, know there were designers before. Like game de- I, I thought they just sort of showed up, you know? Yep, exactly. Um, and um, I think people think you make decisions in a lot more, uh, you know, rational way than you do. Right. Um, and I think people don't understand how much production drives decisions. Not that they make the decision, but you have limitations in production. You have time right. constraints. You have resource constraints. Somebody gets sick. Yeah. You know, you have to make decisions. Yeah. Um, Did you name the studio Irrational because it was an irrational decision to break <laughs> off and start the thing? I wish I could say it was like that's like thought out. Like there were, we were like kicking around names, and it was the name we hated at least. <laughs> we had a name, John and I, John and I had been playing this game. I can't remember what it was called. It's like one of these hex based war games. Okay. And it was incredibly detailed, right? Ton, it was so low level detail, like in you know, a rule section, pipe 15.371. And they had a combat table, man-to-man combat table, man-to-horse combat table, horse-to-horse combat table, table, and an underwater (laughs) horse-to-horse combat table. So we got this close to calling ourselves underwater horse. Um, But we just thought that was too weird at the time. It doesn't doesn't have the same ring to it. It doesn't doesn't lend itself to a classy kind of deco-style logo. No, you know, I, I, it was just, it was just, we sort of said, it was one of those things we said, how about Irrational? And the three of us, I don't remember who said it. Yeah. Maybe it was Ra, I don't know, maybe it was me, maybe it was John. And we literally looked at each other and we said, all right, that's, that's fine. Let's get that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, there were a lot of years in between Bioshock 1 shipping and Infinite shipping, though Infinite was in various forms of development mm-hmm. for, a, for a lot of that yep. interim. Um I mean, that must have been a weird turnaround as well, because it's like you've taken System Shock 2 and you've made it into a millions-selling console game, and what, like, I know I know there were a lot of steps in, in between, um, but at the end of the day, like, you know, when, when, it, when it turned out you were going to be coming back to Bioshock, but the... The next step, you know, what, like, what were your motivations for how it, what you were going to add to it or change or how it was going to be, you know, a new experience? Because, I mean, I think that as an end user, the main aspect of that is like, okay, well, Booker and Elizabeth, you know, Booker talks, Elizabeth is there with you. Um, Was, was that sort of the, the, the impetus for the the project or did that relationship or that kind of mechanic come later well so bioshock isn't particularly radically different from system shock of how it presents narrative right and i think we wanted to go to another we didn't want to go to cutscenes we wanted to go to another level and you know booker and elizabeth sort of you know came out of that you know a voiced main character which they didn't have in the first two in system shock and right Bioshock. and the you, did. you you were the guy that put the voice in garrett's mouth in in Thieves. yes and yes. booker is is a little garrett oh, totally. he's, he's, he's a puckish he's, rogue he's a film noir character yeah. we're both film noir characters right yeah there's there's not there's not a lot of daylight there i agree sure. um and and one of the reasons he is because we wanted booker to be archetypal so you could imprint upon him fairly easily and he was he's not you know when tr- um, we always you know talk trying to talk about this all the time that 
we we didn't want too much sort of we didn't want anything the player would argue with sure that booker said you know right. like i wouldn't say that you know we wanted things to say booker to say pretty straightforward things we wanted to say it funny and cleverly and smartly right. whatever we can elizabeth was a place where we had a lot more flexibility because she wasn't the player right um, and I think that was really the goal. That became the goal for that game is how do we make a, a you care about a person on the screen in a really meaningful way. Yeah. Um, I remember. I remember when I when I was interviewing at Irrational, I had a phone interview with you. And this was in late 2010. And we did like a follow-up phone, phone interview. And I remember you were like, what I want to do is is make a love story. Like figure out how to make the player fall in love with this character. And I was like, well, it sounds like doing that as a first-person shooter is probably hard, (laughs) but it's an interesting goal. Um, And, and so like, you know, what, what drove you to, to, to want to, to bite that off? Like what, what, why were you, like, what was the inspiration about saying like, I want this connection with this, with this character in this kind of game? I hadn't done it. Yeah. Um, I hadn't done it before and I don't think a lot of people had really, you know, outside of cutscenes had really done a terrific job. And you had some sort of initial, you know, like, you know, um, Ico and things had done certain things right. like that. Um, but not with a fully voiced and, and you know, uh, you know, her, her, Elizabeth's arc is quite complex and long and complex and, and she goes through a lot of stuff and I really wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to explore that and it was tough because it was a first person shooter, right? And yeah. So, you know, I think getting the beach part in, in um, I think you were gone by the time we really were developing The beach that. was there. The beach was there. I mean, everything was, in all the geo was new when I, when I played it right. on the disc. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, there was, there was stuff that was blocked. Yeah. And basically, I had seen versions of everything up to the end of Finkton, basically, by the time I, I left, right. you know, and, and like everything was, radically different in form but you know the 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 street carnival and the the lottery scene and you know the beach like the the and liz's tower like the moments were 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 just they were just um they were very very uh uh embryonic i guess um and and there were there were interesting things about how they changed you know like i there, there was a lot of nuance to the to the beach scene you know that that um, I'd only seen the very basics of, yeah. um, but well, that was where we figured out like, like, could you just be with her, you know, yeah. and could that be interesting? Yeah. And, um, and we spent a lot of time on that beach, you know, a lot of time on that beach right. trying to get that right. And, and, you, and you got the Cindy Lauper in there, which is the great, Lauper, yeah. that was, that was I, I, I love the, the ones of those that were instrumental, you know, because you're like, you're hearing it and then it just dawns on you. Like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> Girls do just want to have you know, fun. <laughs> that thing was another thing. The, the, those songs we redid. There's one of those things like you have this idea. Like I was I'm probably in a run. I was like, you know, it'd be really cool if we get modern music in this by somebody stealing the music through tears. Right. And I went and I talked to, and it's an idea I probably had for three years, right? And I went to talk to Jim about it. And Jim, you know Jim, right? Jim is just like, he's Jim game Bonnie for anything. Jim Bonnie's yeah. game for anything. And yeah. so, you know, I came with this idea and I said, let's try these songs. And, you know, Jim then gets the, you know, Jim's the one who actually then has to go make it happen. He went and found all the musicians, and because right. and, and he, he has so many relationships with, with musicians, and cultivated them, and he'd bring them, come back, and I'd be like, like he remember he wrote like the first version of the Barbershop Quartet. I said I wanted, right. um, I got to know is a Barbershop Quartet, and he brought it back, and I said to him, you know, 
it's not there yet. And here's why. And the problem with me is that like, I'm not a musician, right? So I would describe things in a layman sense. And Jim would have to interpret those as a musician and then bring it back. And he was exceptionally, you know, amazingly good at that. Yeah. Um, and by the way, congratulations to your sound and art guys at the GEC Awards the other night. Uh, the visual art and sound both, both they, they took trophies it. home. And like those, like, the, that... Those aspects of that game, unimpeachable. Like, amazing. <laughs> no, they're, they're, those guys are, yeah. Absolutely. Game looks and sounds unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that, um, you know, that was one of those ideas where you're like, you've pitched to people and people don't really know what you're talking about and you can't really tell them why you think it's right until yeah. it's there. And it became, I think, one of the most iconic parts, of, you know, of the game. Yeah. Because it, and then to move people, because they were really surprised by it, right? So, you know, usually soundtracks are quite... Um, um, it can be a bit, um, what do you call it? Let's get the hot new band on the soundtrack, right? Right, you know? sure. Um, Marketing driven or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, Bioshock games are always about music. You know, the period of like, like, like you know, the first Bioshock game when I chose the soundtrack for it, I called my dad and I said, tell me about growing <laughs> up. You know, tell me about the musicians you listen to. Wow, so that's cool. He turned me on to a lot of that stuff. Huh. Um, and this one, you know, I didn't have a grant. There's nobody old enough. <laughs> so <laughs> you I didn't have anybody from 1912. Nobody from 1912. Yeah. And the music was, frankly, you know, to the modern ear, a little thin from back then. Like, because it was before jazz, so the chord progressions were really like, they did, 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 did. <laughs> so I know I needed, we knew we needed to do something different. And that's where we, we you know, sort of, so it came out of a need to right. have a soundtrack that was a little more meaningful than just, did, 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 did. Right. And, uh, but then it also required having a partner like Jim who could take those ideas and actually make them happen. Right. And, but that's one of those things, like, who the hell? Who knows why, if that's going to work? Yeah, when you first come up. With yeah, it. and then but then exactly like you say, you know, you follow it to its logical conclusion, and now that that rendition of God only knows is like that. Yeah, it's incredibly memorable. People moment. play at their weddings, you know, that version, which is <laughs> yeah. great. No, I mean, and that's you know, you, like you've you've seen you've seen people connect really deeply with the games that you've made. I mean, you've you've seen. People have, there, there are tons of tattoos of stuff that came out of, you know, games that, that yeah. you've worked on. And, you know, like, when you hear something like, we used the version of this song from your game in our wedding, you know, one of the most important moments in these people's lives, like, that's, that's incredible. You know, like, I mean, that's, that's, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm, well, I'm, I'm, sure I'm just saying a thing right now. Well, look, I'm sure you felt it because, you know, look, you, you, you made a game that dealt with some issues that hadn't been terribly overrepresented in the industry like LGBT issues but I think you did it without um, you did it from a genuine place you didn't just be like well, I'm gonna make a game about, about you know that so I can be different you made it from a genuine place right? and I, I'm guessing tell me if I'm wrong but there were a lot of people who hadn't really had the experience of having some of the, their lives represented that way who were very moved by it I would imagine yeah, yeah, and and seeing that kind of personal connection to the to the stuff, you know, you can't, I don't know, all the other factors, you know, your game can make money and like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that stuff's all great, um, but but seeing the the way that it can impact individuals, yeah, um, is amazing. Yeah. Um, and you should be, I mean, and, and it's you know, look, not to, you know, I know what it's like to start a company, and I know what it's like to conceive a product and sort of not, you know, know what you're nece necessarily was going to work. And you did that so quickly and so fast and so well that, um, you know, I, whether I should feel any pride, I felt pride watching <laughs> you do it. And, you know, 
I liked all, I really liked working with you, and I was you know, and I think I told you when I left, I understand, I totally understood why you were going, and um, you know, and I mean, I you you had done it, you know, like I done it yeah. fifteen years earlier, yeah. right? Um, and and yeah, I I I'm incredibly grateful for the time that I spent working with you and you know Sean and Stephen and Nate and all the incredibly talented people you you had there, and you know both working with that creativity and having seen just you know that like when you when you started irrational it was like the only reason that you were able to do what you've done in the industry is because you were like i'm going to start my own thing like you can't get there from you know here you have to jump off and the, the track right um and and so you know for all those reasons i'm i'm incredibly grateful that i got to to work at Irrational. Um, it, it was a huge part of, of my own development in so many different ways. Ta-da! <laughs> um, I, I know that you, you've got to go. Uh, I wish we'd had more time to talk about more of Infinite and all that, that kind of stuff. Um, Next time. But good luck with... Uh, well, you're gonna come, I'll make you come on, on, on... If I do another Lavina cast, I'll make you come on. And we can talk Let's do more. this thing. I would love... It would be a great opportunity to talk more. But I know that, um, yeah, the second part of the DLC is coming out in a couple of days, so I'm yep. really looking forward to that. Um, and obviously to whatever the crazy, crazy new thing you're going to end up doing is. All right. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you.